0: Today is the last part of a series of going through Creed. Um, Before we get to that, if you think back to your childhood, and if you're kind of like me, and in most cases I hope you're not like me, but if if you're kind of like me and you think back to your childhood, there's like maybe one or two or three toys from your childhood. That really stand out. Like you can remember those toys. You can remember what they smelled like, what they tasted like, what they felt like, what they could do, how they could move. Um, These toys are just kind of ingrained in your memory. And in just a minute, I'm going to share with you the first toy I remember as a kid. And maybe you have this too. But with this toy, it's like, why did we ever get rid of that? Why did my parents put it in the garage sale? I still wish I had it. I'm sure I had hundreds of toys. My parents thought this was just one toy in a million. But for me, it was a one in a million kind of toy. So anyway, I'll I'll talk about that in a second. But before I show it to you, I have to explain the TV show where it came from. Now, remember, I grew up in the 80s. If you grew up maybe in the 90s, and if you were a fan of the Power Rangers... First of all, I don't understand you. <laughs> Second of all, the whole premise of Power Rangers was really stolen or borrowed from an earlier cartoon. If you grew up in the 80s or 90s, and it, it, maybe even more pre, more recent cuz this is it's been revamped, but if if you're a fan of Transformers, hats off. That's an amazing show, amazing cartoon, ama- everything about it is just awesome. Oh, but there's this one part of Transformers, if you remember the old one, where th- there was a bunch of pieces of construction equipment, Transformers, and they could come together to form one big robot. That's, like, awesome. Anyone else remember that, or am I making that up? Is that legit? I, okay, I think it was even a McDonald's thing for a while. But you, you, you put these things together. If you were amazed by that, absolutely, that's amazing. But they borrowed or they stole that idea from a previous cartoon. Now the cartoon and the, the action figure that really got me excited was this thing called Voltron. I got some amens from the first service. This this and I'll explain it for you because this was like a really short-lived thing, and then they kind of had some spin-offs. But it was like 84, 85, 86 in that time range. This cartoon called Voltron was out. And the long story short, you had six, I'm sorry, five heroes who traveled the galaxy piloting. Lion robots. Saving the world. Saving the universe. Piloting Lion robots. And some of you are like, you should not be taking any jabs at Power Rangers at this point. At least you can understand the Power Ranger thing. But here's the cool thing. And in, in, in all the cartoons and all the stories, you see these five lion robots. I mean, they're just awesome to begin with. They're battling all these evil doers. You know, they're saving things. They're, you know, all this cool stuff they're doing. But by the end of each episode, there was an enemy so big, a conflict so great, that the five lion robots couldn't handle it. But they had to join together to form what was called Voltron. (laughs) Greatest cartoon ever. And I remember having this toy as a child. I remember like the little lion face arms and they'd open up with the blasters, you know, the the guns that would come out. You'd have the lion feet and the, the lion face where you've actually got a face with the teeth around it. I'm like, that just looks so tough and so awesome. In the cartoons, when these five came together to form Voltron, I feel like saying that in a different voice, Voltron. When they came together, It wasn't just the sum of the five powers together. It was like the multiplication of the five powers put together to form Voltron. They could, when they came together, it was like they could take out the Death Star all by themselves. And that's kind of mixing metaphors. I'm sorry if that's confusing. There was no big, bad evildoer that they could not get rid of. It was so impressive. So as 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 you play through the episodes, it's like okay, cool. The five are in their lion robots, you know, doing stuff. But you always had to wait to the end to see the grand epic battle, Voltron. Well, today we're finishing off a series in uh, that's called Creed. And simply in this series, we've been walking through the Apostles' Creed. Uh, An ancient statement of faith designed to summarize who God is and what God has done and what God will do. A simple, simple summary of faith. And today, we get to the grand epic finale. We see what God can do. You see, up to this point, we've been looking at God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. We've kind of been splitting them up and seeing what each person of the Godhead does. And this is amazing God describes himself as three persons, three unique persons, and yet, inseparably, they are one God. Which, try to explain that, you can't. Which is kind of comforting. You can't understand the God who created you. But that's a different story. But in this creed, we've seen God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. We've seen each unique side to God and each unique person of God. But it's in this grand finale that we see what the triune God was united to do. When he operates, when he acts as your God, we're going to break into the amazing epic grand finale. And this is something that no six-year-old, no 10-year-old, no person could possibly imagine the finale to. Now as we, as we get into that, the, the topic we're going to dive into today is one of those topics that we don't often dive into when it comes to regular life, or I'll put it this way. A lot of our life is spent in routine. Right now, some of you are thinking about what you're going to be doing this afternoon or this evening or tomorrow. Everyone's going to be doing something. Maybe you're just vegging out and relaxing at home. That's something, and you're thinking about that. Um, For a lot of us, we're thinking about, okay, what's going to be for lunch? What's going to be for supper? And we've got kind of these plans working we're thinking, awesome, tomorrow is another day off, because tomorrow is Labor Day, as, as I share this message, and some of you are like, awesome, Tomorrow's Monday, but then you're like, ah, uh, Tuesday's still coming, though, and Tuesday will come. Some of you right now are thinking about the laundry that you should do tonight, and then you're canceling that out with the laundry that you will do tonight. Some of you are thinking, it's about time for an oil change on the car, and as long as I'm changing the oil, I should probably wash it, but... Ah, winter is coming. Is it too late to move to Florida? And we're thinking about all the things coming up, and some of you are thinking about a project you've got coming up maybe next week. Some of you are thinking about retirement and how the, you know, how are things looking for that. Some of you are thinking about a vacation coming up. Um, some of you are worried about a child. Some of you are worried about a parent. We have all these things that are part of our regular routines and this this is especially true in our time and in our culture, we get so lost in that routine that there come these moments when we are absolutely shocked when we have to put a funeral in our personal calendar. And those moments just stop us in our tracks and they make us think, what in the world is life really about? those moments of being reminded of death or having funerals, they, they force you to interrupt your routine. And I'll tell you what, the, the circumstances around the interruptions, they might not be good, they might not be fun, but I believe that they can all serve a good purpose. Because the more I thought about this, the more comfortable I was in putting it this way, that nothing will influence your life more than your view of death when you really pause in that moment to think about your death, your view of that will influence your life more than anything or anybody else. Because face it, in the aftermath of that funeral that you went to or that funeral that you had to help plan, weren't the next few weeks a little bit different? Maybe you spent more time with your kids, less time on your phone. Maybe you were more free with your money. Maybe you said, let's just take that vacation because... Time with family is what matters. Isn't it true that your life changed a little bit in the aftermath? How you view death influences everything about you and it touches everything about you. And at the end of this message, I'm gonna, we're going to look at two main ways because here's the thing. There are so many different views of death out there. And even as we gather, this is a public meeting space. We could have a lot of different views of death in the room. But, but, Whatever your view is, it's going to push you to change in one of two ways. One of two things is going to push you to change. And at the end of the message, I want to dig into those. But before we dig into that too much, there's some groundwork we have to lay. Because when it comes to reflecting on death, this is something we would rather put behind a wall and not deal with it until we absolutely have to. But God says, your Father says, when it comes to death, I want you to be influenced in the right way. I want to make sure, your father in heaven says, I want to make sure that your view of death influences you in the right way, not in a negative way. And as much as we like to think that we're good with it, or we can handle it, or we know it's coming, your father says, no, no, it's important to pause strategically at times in your life to contemplate the reality of your death. And as you view it, to let that influence you in a healthy, healthy way. Now, we, we have defense mechanisms when it comes to dealing with death today. As it turns out, these have been in place for thousands of years. We're going to look at a, a section in the uh, book of First Corinthians, a letter that Paul wrote in the first century. He was dealing with people who had an inaccurate view of death. We're going to see why in just a minute, but one of the main reasons he wrote this letter 2,000 years ago was to help correct a view when it comes to death. Here's what he wrote 2,000 years ago to some Christians in Corinth. He said, But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If our whole premise as Christians is that this man named Jesus entered death and then conquered it, how can it be said that there is no resurrection? Now, before we judge them too much for that, here was their situation. In the first century, as Jesus was ascending into heaven, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, as Jesus was ascending into heaven, the disciples were like, okay, any minute he's going to come back, so let's just... Do his work, but kind of keep an eye on the skies. Do our work, keep an eye on the skies. And they—they—they literally, they thought he was going to come back within their timeline. And so that's why in the first century, you don't see the apostles or disciples writing anything down for a decade or two after Jesus left. They thought, we just got to go out and get the message out because Jesus could come back at any moment and this whole life is going to be done. But what happened was different. Christians were gathered together. Churches were formed. They were doing their work with their eyes to the sky. But as they were doing their work with their eyes to the sky, what they noticed was that some of their fellow Christians were dying because it was taking too long for him to come back from the sky. Uh, One by one, you know, people within these congregations were beginning to die. And so their assumption was, well, that's too bad for them. Hopefully we can last out until Jesus comes back. Too bad for them who died because I guess they're kind of gone forever. There's no coming back from that. Maybe they're in a different realm, a different place, but they're, they're not going to come back. And so Paul had to write this letter and say, wait, 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 wait. Before you go too far and just assume that dead people cannot be raised, just remember this, remember this. If it's preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? There's a connection there. He goes on. He's going to use a negative argument here, but he's going to say, if you want to play this out in your faith with God, this is where it's going to lead you. Next verse. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then here's what you're saying. Not even Christ has been raised. But we're not... They might, be, they, they might be saying, but we're not talking about Jesus being raised. We're talking about us being raised. And Paul's like, yeah, same thing. If Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. And this is like, okay, we're in neutral territory These people knew how much traveling Paul had done, how much work he had done, how much he had sacrificed to preach this message of Jesus. And he's basically saying, if you get rid of this idea of a resurrection, everything I did is useless. And everything you believed in is useless. And then he takes it a step farther. He's like, well, this isn't just like a neutral thing where we're wasting our time or you're wasting your faith. He, he goes on to say it even stronger. He says this, next verse. He says, more than that, if we are then found to be false witnesses about God. Here's why. We testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead, but he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. Translation. If you want to double down and say, once you die, that's it, there is no more, and you just vanish, poof, all you were was a body, and once that body is dead, you are not around anymore. If that's your stance, then we have been attacking God by saying he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Their resurrection, our resurrection, and Jesus' resurrection, they're not two different things. They have to be taken together. And not only would these apostles, Paul himself, being attacking the true teaching of God, but then he goes on to say your faith is, is also against him. If, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. Picture faith as standing in a place that you believe to be true. And Paul is saying, if you've been standing on Christ but you don't believe in a resurrection, you're standing on a cloud. Your faith is futile. It will not make things any better. It will only make things worse. And then all those who have fallen asleep in Christ, all those who have already died, they're gone. He's making a strong connection here and I'll tell you why in just a minute. He's saying, if you doubt that God can raise you up, then you're doubting he has the power to raise Jesus up. If he can do one, he can do other, the other. But if you take that out of the equation of your faith, here's the danger, the last part here. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we, get, look at the word order here, we are of all people, Most to be pitied. Or another way to translate, we of all people are most to be pathetic. Why is that? Well, because if you live your life following Jesus, what does he call you to do? Now, following him means, yeah, you trust in him for, for your forgiveness and your salvation, but to follow him means you love others more than yourself. What does that require of you? Loving others before yourself requires sacrifice of yourself. This is a life of following him, a life of carrying a cross, carrying burdens that otherwise we wouldn't carry. And if all of it is for nothing, guess what? The world should look at you and me as Christians and say, there is no word to describe how much we pity you. You've been living your life with this false dream that there's life to come, but if there is no life to come, we've been sacrificing our lives for nothing. At the very least, you know, the rest of the world is having fun, live, eat, and drink, and be merry, and all that fun stuff. We are the opposite. We are denying ourselves. We are crucifying ourselves so that we can make a big deal about God. But if there is no resurrection, if it's only for this life that we have hope, then we are to be pitied more than all men. Now, Paul is making this case. It's a negative case, but he's making this to make a point. And it's a really basic point. Basically, he's saying, if you believe that God had the power to raise Jesus from the dead, then he also has the power to raise you. If you don't believe that you will be raised someday, then you're calling into question the power that raised Jesus. You can't separate the two. It's a universal rule or a universal principle. Uh, here's another way to think about it. Every, either every body can be raised, or nobody can be raised. It's, it's got to be an all or nothing thing, because when Father, Son, and Spirit, unique three persons, but inseparably one God, when they work to raise a person back to life, either the power is there, or it isn't. Now here's the good news. The good news is that you do not have to prove to yourself or to anybody else that it is possible for God to raise a pile of human ashes up into a living person again. You don't have to prove that God has the power to raise a person back to life someday. You don't have to prove that because all you need is one resurrection to prove it. Here's the good news. Paul goes on. The good news is, as, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You don't have to prove that you can be raised someday because God already proved that through His Son, Jesus Christ. The triune God with all their power struck at death, and they overcame it. The proof is in the risen, resurrected Lord. The entire New Testament was written as evidence that it happened. And now God says the proof is there, is in Jesus. He is the first fruits. In other words, the first of many, the proof that it can be done and that it will be done again. And then Paul, he goes on, he says, maybe that's too much. You know, maybe even putting your faith in that event, maybe that's... Maybe that's too much of a stretch for some of the people that he was writing this to. And so he takes a different approach in the next verse. He says, you don't even have to look so much at this event that we're telling you to believe. The whole premise for this resurrection goes all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. The first few chapters that were written gave you all the evidence you need that a resurrection had to take place and that God can do it. He points all the way back to Genesis 3 where Paul brings this up. Uh, he says, "For, Here's his summary. Here's why, here's why the resurrection thing works. He says, For, Since death came through a man. Mm, men, right? Since death came through a man. He's referring here to Adam. Adam and Eve, but he kind of focuses on Adam. Adam was the one who disobeyed God and, and brought that separation between God and men. Since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. We knew the first half of this story for 4,000, 6,000 years. We knew that death came through a man. And if death was going to be overdone or, or over, overtaken, it would have to be also through a man. So here was Adam's thing. and You can be, you can be mad at Adam. That's fine. What Adam did was he ruined it for the rest of us. He had this perfect relationship with God, right? This perfect relationship of love. But Adam created separation between God and man when he disobeyed. God gave Adam and Eve a choice because love requires a choice. He wanted a love relationship. But then Adam and Eve chose to break that love relationship by seeking their own self-interest rather than God. And so that love relationship was broken. And ever since then, that separation has called for death. It's not fair, is it? We, as Adam's descendants... Are deserving death from the moment we are born. And since that day, it's been a 100% mortality rate. But since through death, death came through a man, the resurrection also comes through a man. And he, he kind of summarizes it in this next verse. He says, maybe that's too much. Here's the point. For as in Adam all die, we were all born in Adam. That's the way we entered this world. Here's the alternate. So in Christ all Will be made alive. So in Christ, all will be made alive. Here's the unfortunate truth, but also the fortunate truth. We pay for what Adam did. Death is proof that we pay for what Adam did. But the resurrection of Jesus is proof that that payment has been made. I, I put it this way death. Proves that we must pay for what one man did. But a resurrection proved that another man paid. Death was the result of sin. The resurrection was the proof of righteousness. One man offset the other. And as Paul explains this, he's like, this is the basic truth. This is why the resurrection had to take place. Because If death was truly overtaken, if sin was truly forgiven, there would be nothing left but life. And so maybe you look at those two things as, you know, Adam did one thing, Jesus did another, and so they kind of offset each other. They're almost on the same level, but in order to fully appreciate the grand finale of the Apostles' Creed, we have to take a little bit of a bigger picture. And and Paul kind of zooms out in a different letter as he talks about the same thing. He says, listen, listen, to, to fully appreciate what... The Triune God did for you. Just think of it in these terms. Think of it in these terms. He says this in the first I'm sorry, Romans chapter five. He says, "The gift of what Jesus gave is not like the trespass that Adam did. What Jesus gives is not the same as what Adam did. Here's why. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought. This big word, justification. Adam had it easy. He had it easy. He just did one thing and poof, everything has changed for the rest of human history until God brings it to an end. He just did one thing. That's all he did. Adam, could you just do that one thing? Yep, I did it. One thing. And now here's this avalanche. Here's this tidal wave. Here's this mountain of sin and evil and guilt and wickedness that he and all of his descendants would create. Picture that. Adam, through generations, 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 all this evil is just accumulating, accumulating. And then, then entered another man. He was not like Adam. He had to take into account many things, many trespasses, many sins, much evil, a mountain of it. But his gift was to take all of that and put it on himself. The gift was not like the trespass. What Jesus did was not like Adam because what, when, when triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, makes this plan to redeem us from death, the amazing grand finale is that word there, justification. The gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. This idea that the world is now declared not guilty. The mountain of sin has been paid for and taken away. The triune God intervened to square off against our biggest enemy of death, and he took away the root cause of it. Now as Paul thinks about this, he's like, I know this is a lot. I know as you think about what this... Father, Son, and Spirit has done for you. There's so many things that are probably running through your mind and you're trying to grapple with it. He says, as you do this, there's something you need to be aware of. And this is a, a section from another letter. He said, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived. Now he says, we're talking about the things God has prepared for those who love him. When you think about this gift that's being given to you, no eye can compare it to something else. No ear has heard something similar. And if you were to take this gift and put it into the lap of a six-year-old, even his imagination wouldn't know what to do with it. The gift of eternity is something so amazing, and yet it's possible for this reason. The triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three unique persons, yet one inseparable God, decided to intervene for you to look death in the face and to defeat it Defeat it. And here's what Paul follows up with. The things God has prepared for you, these are the things God, his spirit, has revealed to you. As he's going through this battle, he's like, guys, you might want to see this. Guys, check this out. You see what I'm doing for you? You see this cross? I want you to remember that. This is the epic grand finale where you are given the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, And the life everlasting. Can I hear an amen? Yeah, you feel like saying amen after that, didn't you? We have this amazing gift. It it goes beyond anything that we can think about. So much so I'll put it this way: last one for the for the day, number four. We have no point of reference for life everlasting. No point of reference. You see, death is something we have a reference for. We see people die, we see things die, and they just stop. They're gone, they go away. But we have no frame of reference for life everlasting. And so here's the cool thing about this. Here's the cool thing. You see, your Father in heaven, when these times come up in your life, when your rhythm, your routine is interrupted by funerals or by death, these are opportunities for you to remember that there is so much more after. That because Jesus rose from the dead, there will also be a bodily, physical resurrection at the last day where everyone will be united. And those who stand in Christ will stand forgiven by God, rejoicing forever. It's an amazing thing to think about. We have no frame of reference for it, but here's what your father wants from you and from me. He says, when you view death, I want you to be influenced by your view of it. He wants you and me to be influenced every time we remember death, but not in the way that's common. I, I heard it put it this way recently. There's really two, wa- two different words here that we think mean the same thing, but they're a little different. Motivation and inspiration. Uh, motivation simply means the coach is screaming at you to run one more sprint at 100%. That's Motivation. And maybe his motivation is that if he sees 95% effort, you'll run it again. That's motivation. You want to be motivated. It can be out of fear. It can be out of uh, reward. But motivation is something that uh, drives you. It's something that drives you. Inspiration is more about being driven. No outward force needed. You're just Driven, you're inspired. And that word inspire literally means to breathe in. What God did for Adam on day six of creation, took a pile of dirt, pile of clay, breathe, breathe into it, life. Your Father in heaven says, when you consider death, I want you to live inspired. Don't be motivated by fear. Don't be motivated by uncertainty this is your opportunity to to simply be driven by this amazing gift, which I extend to you. Because when Father, when Son, when Spirit work together in unity, they have the power to work forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, and even the life everlasting. Live inspired. What area of your life has been influenced by death? And what would it look like to exchange that motivation with inspiration? As we close up the series, and you think about the promise of life everlasting, there's really only one way to close the idea. We can't explain what is to come. We can't even picture it. All you can do is say, Amen. Let it come. Amen. Let's pray. Triune God, God, From before creation, before matter existed, before time was a thing, before there was any space, before you had spoken anything into existence, you had that little meeting wherever you are. And you decided that even though we as mankind would stray from you, you would work out a plan to intervene. And you would work out a plan where you yourself would face that enemy of death and you would overcome it for us. Such an amazing thing. I pray that you would give all of us this trust and confidence that even when we're troubled by death, whether that's the death of someone we know or maybe the fear of death ourselves, you would give us such confidence in that moment in the fact that Jesus has already overcome it. And someday through your power, we will too. May we live inspired by your power and by your love to impact all those around us with this same hope and peace that you've given to us. We pray all those things in Jesus' name.